you for joining us as we elevate the Black entrepreneur experience by interviewing CEOs, thought leaders, innovative thinkers, and Black entrepreneurs across the globe. I'm your host, Dr. Frances Richards. Our next guest believes an essential part of healing and self-care is celebrating your history and reconnecting with the wisdom of your ancestors. Welcome, Dr. Giovanni Washington. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Francis. I appreciate being here. I've given our audience such a brief bio. Why don't you fill in the gaps and share with our audience what you'd want them to know about you and your business? Well, I am I'm an ancestral healer, the, your Black Goddess Guide, and I help people harvest the wisdom in their ancestral lineages so that they can curate legacies of healing. And I do that through a suite of programming and products um, dedicated really to uplifting black beauty, black divinity, and black joy. So who is your ideal client? My ideal client, um, it, I have a couple of strands of programming. So usually it's people who are at a crossroads, people who are looking and they're in some sort of transition, moving from one phase of life to another. Um, people who have tried everything else and, you know, traditional means of healing are solving problems and were unable to, um, receive satisfactory results. People come to me then, uh, with their questions. Uh, usually sometimes they know something is going on ancestral. Sometimes they don't. Um, I find about 50% of my clients can put their finger on it even before they arrive that, oh, there's something going on ancestrally. And the other 50%, uh, we, have, they have to, we have to arrive there. We have to arrive there. Um, but they t usually there's something that's cyclical that's happening. They're talking about the same things over and over again. And we pick out the client. We pick out the cycles. We, we open them up. We address them. Um, and um, so people who are in transition, that is the, the, and most of my clients usually are 35 or above. Share, how did you start this work? What got you interested in this specific work? Well, there's a, there's a couple things that happened. Um, man, it's about 20 years ago now. Uh, two decades ago, I lost a boyfriend to suicide and I found him dead. And that really um, was a very pivotal moment in my life. And it actually is also when the ancestors started speaking to me in a way that I had never, maybe they had always been speaking and I wasn't listening, but that was sort of my entry and uh, first real fresh and in my face experience with death and transition of people dying. Um, previous to that, my experience with people dying had been very, uh, I think the, the rituals and the around grief and dying in the States are very insufficient in the United States. And so it was always something that was just sort of held at an arm's length. And this was the first time in my young adult life that I was uh, just really confronted with the, what I thought then the trauma and the tragedy of dying, but I've come to understand that it's really just another level of initiation. So that's where, that was sort of the first entree that started in the journey. And then more recently in how I came to work with the black goddesses, um, one, I got really into oracle decks and started real and, and, and in the tarot world and was realizing that many of the oracle decks and tarot decks don't have representation. Um, there's not there's not equal representation. Black divinity is not seen in those spaces. Um, I even ordered an Afro-Cuban Orisha deck one day, which is the um, 
It's what the Nigerian IFA system translated to when the enslaved folks were taken to Cuba. It became Santeria. And um, the Afro-Cuban deities were white in this deck. And I was they completely just erased blackness. It was very, very, very challenging and confronting. So that was combined with me already working with the black goddesses. And then there was this moment, this sort of social justice moment where the Ferguson debacle happened and yet another unarmed black, uh, I think it was a teenager, was killed by police officers who were then acquitted. And I was working with women, working with the black goddesses. And we decided in a meeting, this was, we were meeting the same day that the, um, the acquittal came down. And we, I don't remember the conversation. I just know we all left that day with a commitment to change the way the world saw the black body. And so I've, for me, that looked like this car, this, a car deck that we've already published and the car deck that's in the making that's going to publish next year. And I've also come to understand um, the Black Goddesses as a, a line of our ancestors. So I think we have bloodline ancestors, milk line ancestors, and then uh, spiritual line ancestors. And the, the Black Goddess is a part of our milk line. And so my work is about honoring our ancestry and reconnecting ourselves to our lost histories and really repairing the rupture of colonialism. We want to thank our audience for joining. If anyone has a question for Dr. Giovanni, please let us know. Dr. Giovanni, talk about death, grief, and the pandemic. Oh, there you go. That is an excellent question. Um, death, grief, and the pandemic. So that's really interesting. I personally have not known anyone to die from um, what, what I've come to call Queen Corona because I believe that she is reigning and making us all stand up and take notice or sit down and take notice as it were. Um, and I recently have suffered with COVID about a month ago and I came to understand, you know, it's, it's really not just a cold, it's some, some other entity altogether. And it really brought home for me, especially in the beginning of COVID, maybe that first year before people vaccinations were available and the, the rules started to change around quarantine. It brought home for me how there was like a double wound that was happening in, um, with Corona, with people dying and then being died, they're they're sick, their health is failing, they're suffering alone in isolations and then dying in isolation. And how what a horrible, horrible experience that must have been um, for people. And then for people who were who maintained light, uh, who were not, I'm sorry, who were not ill, whose loved ones were dying, to not be able to be with their loved ones uh, while they were were dying. And so I think that there's the grief of the loss. And then there's the grief of the not being able to have some been with your loved one as they passed away. Um, and in some ways for me personally, it was something I was just sort of watching on TV happen, you know, or listening to on the radio or listening on podcasts. But when I suffered with it, I was like, Oh, I cannot imagine having to have dealt with this alone. Um, you know, people were dropping off food, but they couldn't come into the house, you know. And so to be ill, to not be able to take care of yourself or having to take care of young children while you're by yourself um, and then possibly just dying. It's, it's really, um, 
it's a, it's a double grief and it's a, it's a wound that I think, or a double wound that I think that we have not really let ourselves, um, we have not let ourselves really embrace. So we have survived a pandemic while still in a pandemic. And by the way, we're still in a pandemic. And I think I have to remind people often, like none of us is really okay. You know, we are all grieving, not, death certainly on one hand, but just the change of our lives altogether. Everyone's life has changed. Everyone has been impacted by this, whether or not they personally suffered from the, the illness. And it's really, um, I think that, I mean, there's no way to know what this trauma is going to look like in 20 years, but there's no way that we're getting, you know, that people are going to just be able to go back to quote unquote normal. We are all going to be, we all, I mean, it would behoove us all to grieve this collectively somehow. I don't even know what that would look like, but there needs to be a collective grieving. Fill in the blank. Thank you, pandemic, because. Uh, I'm grateful to the pandemic for really um, putting the racial wound in America on a worldwide stage. Um, I feel like in many ways, there are you know certain factions in this country that were just talking to themselves about um, the fabric of this country that you know the, the genocide and the forced labor and all like America is blooded land, and I feel like now the world really understands that. Um, I, I hate of course that George Floyd lost his life to this, but I, I do think that um, the racial reckoning that happened afterward was, um, and hopefully is still happening, was really a powerful moment in our country's history, in our world's history, really. Do you have a, a gratitude for it? You know, I do. I think, I think, um, and thank you for that. Um, one of the um, listeners had a question for you. So I, I was actually responding if they wanted to come off and ask. Um, oh. There are several questions in the, in the queue. So I'm going to ask those questions. Okay. And so I want to respect the audience and I will answer anything you have for me. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I see the questions now. Okay. Did you want to take them or do you want me to ask them? Uh, sure. No, I can ask it. So Randy Otterbridge is, ans is asking how to trace ancestry and its lessons within adoptive situations. It's a lineage question. I think this is, this is very important. Um, one of the things I talk about often is the, um, the concept of belonging. And... I, as I mentioned, I believe that there are three kinds, at least three kinds of ancestors. You have your, your bloodline. Those are people that you're genetically related to your milk line. And those are people who have nurtured you. And then your, um, your spirit line, which are spirit beings, elements, maybe animals, just spirits that have walked with you on your path. And so, um, for in adoptive situations, and I have worked with folks who are adopted, um, certainly with all of the genetic testing that's available now, if people are willing to do that, you can in fact find your, or identify, um, your parent, your parentage. Um, 
And what happens, what has happened with me, with the folks that I've worked with who are adopted, they almost always focus on their milk line, right? Like, I don't think that blood DNA is the, our uh, genetics, sorry, blood DNA is the only, blood ancestors are not the only ancestors who are with us. And I do think that we can extrapolate, like in some sense, most Americans, I think, are cultural orphans, right? Um, I can speak from the Black American experience as a person who um, I've traveled quite extensively in West Africa and uh, recently got the genetic, well, years ago, almost 10, 15 years ago, I did Ancestry DNA and I got the results back. And um, this is my mother's mother's line. And it attached us to maybe like 10 or 11 different countries in Africa. And I was like, it, it just didn't change my life at all. It wasn't helpful. Um, I, in fact, I was pretty disappointed. And then recently did AfricanAncestry.com. And I, I get no kickback from these companies. I did AfricanAncestry.com and found out that my father's father's line is from a, um, the Bisa people in Burkina Faso. And there was something about that specificity, right? There was something about... Um, well, also having been in Burkina Faso twice about 10 years ago um, and literally saying out loud, wow, these people look like my cousins. Like everywhere I would go outside, uh, I, I would see family, people who look like my family members. And it just sort of tumbled out of my mouth. Like, oh, I no longer feel like a cultural orphan. And so I do believe that there's work that we can do and there's ancestry work in particular, there's ancestral healing that we can do that isn't necessarily related to your bloodline. Because again, for African-Americans, in many cases, you can, we can only go back maybe five, six generations. And so there's always going to be this big gaping wound, um, our whole lacuna of information. Um, so I think I, I like having blood, milk, spirit. There's, there's always a way to belonging. That's my, that's my answer to you, Randy. Okay. You want me to, I, I don't do, shall I try the next one? Yes, please do. Thank you. Okay. And then Schnarf Yourself says, nothing in the narrative of black entrepreneurship supports the improvement of quality for, for all black people in the United States. It's simply a way of extracting wealth out of black people yet again by a class of people who reaffirm the old adage, skin folk ain't kin folk. I'm not sure there's a question there. Improvement of quality of all black people in the United States is simply a way of extracting wealth. I mean, maybe you can help me with the question, Dr. Richard. I'm not, I'm not certain what the question is. Yeah, I think it was just a comment that he was making and, um, and the person was making, I don't want to say if it's, and, um, oh, yeah, yeah, they were like, yeah, we're just, um, we're going to let it go on that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that, let's, um, talk about what is your biggest takeaway from our conversation today? Um, I think the biggest takeaway from conversation today. And let me just expound on that. Dr. Giovanni, when we leave this conversation, what do you want the audience, what do you want the audience to take away from our conversation? I think, I think first of all, that grief is real, 
right? And it happens in all kinds of ways. It's not only associated with death. I think it's typically associated with a loss of some kind. And I think when we become better um, holders of grief, when we learn how to hold our grief and to meet our grief, to, um, and the grief can be around, for me personally, I, I hold a big grief for all, all the stories that were lost in the passage for example um, the information you know that just disappeared or disappeared I um, I, I think maybe in America as I, said, I think I traveled uh, around uh, whatever grief you might be holding and to know that as a community there is a people don't talk about it, which again, sort of doubly wounds. It, it's a, it's a, it exponentiates the wound, but it was Corona in particular, like we are, we, are, we have all been impacted by this immensely. And um, like, we're really, none of us is okay. Sure. We're making it through the day, but really none of us is okay. And so I think to give ourselves, be generous with ourselves and give ourselves instant grace and um, be willing to, um, be patient and be kind with ourselves first and then others. That's where I would, that's what I hope people walk away with today. And what problem exists in the world today that you'd like to solve? My work is re really focused on um, changing the way the world sees the black body. So I would like to help the world see the humanity in black in the black body, particularly the black male body, um, because I think that's the body that's been the most vilified, certainly the most hunted. And um, I, like I said, I do this through creating these exquisite black goddess within Oracle decks and programming associated with that. So that is, that is the problem that I'm working on day in and day out. I stand up all of my professional, personal artistic, um, endeavors are around standing up for the black body. Advice you wish you had followed. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, advice I wish I had followed. You know, my dad used to always say to me, well, how are you going to monetize that? How are you going to monetize that? How are you going to monetize that? Because I just kept going back to school and I just kept blowing him off. I just wasn't interested. I was just like, I'm just going to go and learn the topic, learn the topic, learn the skill. Um, and now that is a question I literally ask myself every day, like, how am I going to monetize that? You know, how, how is this going to work in your business? How is this going to impact other people's businesses and lives? And so I think if there's a way, because money is the currency of adulthood in America, right? It's like, how do you find the thing that you love and also be able to make a living from it. And so if I, if I, I guess my advice or the advice I wish I had listened to was figuring out, um, maybe it's not the advice, but what was under the advice, which is not to see money as a, uh, an evil, right. And to understand it as a tool for, um, promoting whatever my goals were. So did you figure that out, how to marry those worlds of monetization 
and um, your passion? Um, eventually, yeah. Are you still there? Hello? I think the connection's gone wonky. No, did you hear me? Can you hear me now? Uh, I heard part of it. I can now. I heard part of it. Yeah, so you were saying eventually. So you're saying you you haven't really figured out that piece or you have figured out the piece? Oh, no. I think I've definitely figured out the piece. Or, you know, I'm still I'm I'm going to continue to figure out the piece. But I, there was definitely a shift in my life at some point that was I was just clear that it needed to be figured out. And, and money and monetization wasn't something that I needed to hold apart from me. It wasn't an uh, an evil that I you know needed to look away from. So, Doctor Giovanni, what is the best decision you've made as a leader? I think hands down, the best decision I made as a leader is hiring people who are the best at what they do, and stop trying to do everything myself. A hundred percent. Let's talk about legacy. When it's all said and done, how do you want to be remembered? I am, um, I want to be remembered as the person who brought the, uh, the black goddesses um, and their wisdom to, I mean, I don't, I don't like to use the word discover because clearly they've already been discovered, but have brought them, put them together brought their collective wisdom together in one in a compendium and brought it to the world. And through that tool was able to um, ignite belonging and then ignite an, an ancestral healing and, you know, talk about things like rematriation with folks so really hoping, helping people actually become better leaders through this work, through their healing, through ancestral wisdom, through ancestral healing. Talk about mental wellness and entrepreneurship. Can you be more specific? Yes. In order to, you're running your business and how important is your mental wellness or what do you do specifically around maintaining your mental wellness as you manage your business? Um, you know, I had a my first business coach used to say all the time that if you build a better business, you build a better you. And I do think that uh, being an entrepreneur in particular is tantamount to taking a stand for your life. Um, you've got to decide what you believe in. You've got to decide, you know, you've got to be visible. There's, there's so much work. There's so much self, self advocacy that's necessary in entrepreneurship, um, especially so, solopreneurship. Um, self-care is critical. And I don't just mean like, you know, baths and manicures. Uh, I mean, doing things that feed your soul. I mean, taking rest seriously. Um, knowing when to say no, knowing when to cut, cut the work off and actually go and have balance in your homework life, uh, whatever your family, you know, whatever the composition of your family is, spending time with your partner, your kids, your extended family, your parents, whatever that looks like for you. Um, because you can really again, especially as a solopreneur, you can really only show up for as well as you are for other folks for as, uh, as well as you are resourced. And so if you're drained 
or, um, you know, strung, not strung out, but like if you're drained or if you're, um, if your resources, if your inner resource is completely expended, you have nothing to give to other folks. And so you have to give from the overflow. I had a another coach you would literally stand up in front of us and pour water into a teacup, you know, that she was holding in a tea saucer until the water overflowed. And she's like, you have to give from the water in the cup. You cannot give from the teacup, right? The teacup water is your water. And so um, that's really the reminder that I'm always in sort of the visual that drives my balance, my balancing act. It's about making sure that my soul is fed, making sure particularly that I'm well rested and that I can, that I'm fully resourced before I try to show up for other folks. What brings you joy? I love to drum. That brings me drum, uh, drum brings me joy, West African drumming and dancing. Uh, I love to laugh. I think laughter is the oldest, most indigenous medicine. And so um, I like good humor and a good perspective on things. Um, I really, really light up when clients sort of have that aha moment and you can see the internal shift happening. And, you know, there's something different there's a difference between a client setting a goal and writing out the steps and a client really changing their belief about their efficacy and about their ability to do something. And so when that happens, that brings me lots of joy. Um, and travel. Travel is also very exciting to me. I love going to new places, meeting new people, speaking new languages, trying new food, really understanding um, how other people think and move. I think that's very important. What breaks your heart? What breaks my heart? Um, certainly the, um, the vilification of the black body in, in this country and in other places. Um, I am, oh, that's a really good question breaks my heart. Um, parenting, I find sometimes very difficult. It breaks my heart. I think we're up against a lot in the world. Our kids are getting a lot of information very quickly and there's really no way to filter it all. Um, and at some point, you know, they, they, they leave. Um, even if they don't leave your home, even when they're younger, they sort of just leave your, the safety of your wings. And that can be heartbreaking sometimes. Um, Although I know it's the goal is to get them to fly, you know, fly freely. Um, I'm not really sure, Dr. Francis. I don't think I've ever thought, asked that question to myself. It breaks my heart. I want you to give us a, a, an experience. Tell us about the experience we will have as a woman and I come to you, talk about that experience. What would I experience doing the work with you? Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I think at the crux of my work, it's really about shifting from um, 
what I guess I'm going to call the wound of colonialism, which I think is uh, completely about disembodiment. And, you know, we live in a world that privileges writing. We live in a world that privileges um, the mental over the emotional and the rational over the emotional. Um, and so my work is about getting you back in your body or getting you back in touch with your body and sync with your body, aligned with your body. And so we, we tell stories. Um, we talk about, we talk about dreams and divination, rites and ritual, spirit and, you know, shadow. We talk about calling in your ancestors. We, we, we start by building a relationship with your ancestors first. And then we go into the stories that are being told in your life again and again and again. Because like I said, the ancestors are, the, the wound is in the repetition, right? That's how we can find the wound. And um, if we're working one-on-one, -on -one, we would start with a divination, an ancestral divination. Um, and the ancestors point us in the direction of where the work needs to go. And then we would have several sessions, um, private sessions, if we're doing a private work or in the, in the group, if we're doing group work together. And typically my clients stay with me for a while, you know, um, I would say on average three years, because it's, this work does take the time it takes. Sometimes I take breaks in between in that time, but we work together. We are, um, I accompany you on this journey and it's about opening your, it's about really strengthening the, the resource of your body so that you can become a conduit for these messages. Um, so you can harvest, like I said, harvest the wisdom in these lineages that you have. And so is the work centered around, can you do it virtually? Do we need to do it in person? How does that work? Um, I work both ways. During the pandemic, it was exclusively virtual. Um, I do now have clients from all over the country. Um, but we, can, we, we do it both. Um, and the next couple of things that are happening, there's an in-person piece and then um, a virtual piece. And then we meet again in person at the end. So it, it can happen in either way. It's, it's, um, I would say mo at this moment, most of the client work is happening virtually. And I think Zoom allows for that. It's, um, it's, it's, if, if I'm truthful, if I'm 100% honest, there's, some, there's a quality about being in person that I think does allow us to go a bit deeper. Um, but in the absence of that possibility, vir the virtual work is absolutely um, more than sufficient. Dr. Giovanni, I would like you to have a monologue. I want you to name this person, living or not. They have inspired you so much. What are you saying to this person? And I want you to name the person. Okay. Just want to be clear about the ask. You want me to name a person and talk to the person about that's what right. You're about. having a monologue mm -hmm. and this person has inspired you so much. Oh, I the see. The person okay. can be living or not. And what are you saying to this person and who is this person? Um, do you know who I would, who I'd want to speak with? 
Um, I'm going to say Dr. Maladoma Somme, who is a, um, a double PhD West African shaman from Burkina Faso, who has recently passed away. Um, he was, or I, I'll just talk to him. I, first of all, I'm honored and um, sort of in awe that I was able to study with you in the last year of your life. Um, and reading your books and hearing you speak and being in, in training rooms with you and, under, and hearing your stories, the thing that really struck me was again, this, this wound of colonialism. And even though you were born in the village, you were sent to Europe to train, um, and then you came back and you underwent your rites of passage, and then they sent you away again. Um, and so even, and you were sent away by your village, by your family members, by your village members. And that is um, the pain that I, that I read in that story you know, it's, on one hand, I am, I, I'll say jealous, I guess, jealous that you had a home to go back to, that you had a clearly identified set of, um, you know, locations and pl spaces and places that you belong to, whose languages you spoke. But then they sent you away again because that was your ancestral contract. It's, um, it's painful and also I'm grateful but I really was struck by that, um, that moment of that story that when you tell about how you were sent away again and um, you didn't use the word betray, but I felt that it was a betrayal and um, how you stepped into that mantle uh, full throttle and were able to complete a PhD from the Sorbonne and then again in the States um, and how you have really lived up to your namesake of sharing this wisdom with strangers and how you came to the States and created a, a, a nationwide community of folks who are tending to their ancestral wounds, uh, including myself. And um, yeah, it's making me a little emotional actually. It's, um, and then to find out that my dad's people are from your, are from not your people, but the people next door to your people is, um, I mean, I was drawn to you before I had this information, um, before I could even imagine that my people were from there. And so I am grateful for the time that we had together. And um, I'm grateful for your unique perspective on ancestral healing and ancestral communication. And I really strive to honor you and your knowledge and the knowledge of the Dagara people uh, in my divination work in the States. Thank you for that authentic monologue. Someone's listening and they are saying, why do I want to go deep into the wounds and the wisdom of my ancestors? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to answer that with a story. Is that okay? This is your hour. Take it away. Okay. So my mother, well, when I was two years old, my mother and father had triplets. 
And the triplets were born um, three months early, 12 weeks early. And maybe 16 weeks early. I think they were born 16 weeks early. And um, being born at 24 weeks, they were super tiny and underdeveloped. And two of them died. One of them died like an hour and a half after birth. The other died maybe six hours later. And then the third brother um, lived. He survived. They said he was going to die, but he survived until he was, I think, 36. Um, And we went through our entire, I went through, you know, we went through our entire lives. Oh, I mean, I think maybe three times we talked about these two other children. Like we just never talked about them. And, um, when I did bring it up, my mom would say, well, I baptized them. They're fine. Like I did what I was going to, I did what I was supposed to do. So when I was about 41, which was maybe four or five years after my brother's death, um, I was, I don't, I can't even begin to explain why I was just, I had a bee in my bonnet is how I talk about it. I just got a bee in my bonnet about finding these children. And so the, the two ones, the, the two who died at birth. Um, so I started asking my mom some questions and she, you know, was putting together pieces. She's like, well, I think they had a Catholic charity uh, burial, a Catholic burial, charity burial. I, someone told me that they were going to be buried. Like a nurse told me they were going to be buried at the feet of adults. Um, I, um, I, she, like, she said again, she baptized them and that was all that she needed to do. Like she knew that they were with God and she was happy. She was fine. Um, but there was, she wasn't really bothered and she was actually quite curious as to why it was bothering me so much. And I, I, to this day, I don't have an answer. Um, she's like, but, and, and a nurse told her that she, we would never, she would never know where the kids were buried which I thought was an awful thing to say to a woman. You know, it's interesting because this is, this is also after I've had my own child. And so my compassion and understanding of motherhood is it's different than it had been, you know, even five years before. So it turns out it's public record and that you can get death certificates. And I was able to go to the, you know, the vital office records and get the death certificates of baby boy one and baby boy three. My brother who lived was baby boy two. And so they were just baby boy, baby boy. They weren't named. Um, but it turns out that the cemetery was actually listed on their death certificate. So I was able to eventually, I mean, I'm skipping some steps, but eventually I located them. We located their grave. They were buried in an unmarked grave together. They were in a box together. And then underneath them was another infant. And underneath that infant was another infant. So there was four um, children, four infants in the same plot. Um, which was infinitely better than them buried, like this image of having them buried at the, at the feet of adults. And I, that same day, we had a naming ceremony for them. Um, we invited friends and family. We had a council. My mother selected their names. We actually had their name changed in the record. So we uh, officially uh, amended their birth and death certificates. So they now have a first and middle name along with their last name. Um, and eventually, so that was, I don't know, maybe two years ago, three years ago. And then this year, we actually finally got the, um, their headstone engraved and placed. So now there's a name. They're, both of their names are on the headstone. And then there's a space for the other two children who are also, if their families ever come to, and they want to put a, you know, their names on a headstone. And why I tell you the story, like the ancestral part of the story is... Like I, like, I still don't know. Like I said, I still don't know why I was so in, like, why this had to happen. Um, 
but at the, it was the naming of them that ultimately proved to be the thing that was important. And it wasn't just naming them on behalf of my family. It was naming them on behalf of all the ancestors who were lost in the Middle Passage, all the ancestors who made it to the shore but were you know, buried without ceremony. Um, and it's about changing the record, right? It's about acknowledging them. It's about acknowledging their bodies, that they lived and they existed and they deserve the same type of burial that other bodies in this country get. And so um, that was the ancestral piece to me. And like I said, it wasn't, I didn't know that's where it was going in the beginning. I just knew that I was being driven by this like indefatigable compulsion to find them and ultimately name them um, on behalf of, uh, and my mom still says she's fine, but at some point she did write me a lovely letter uh, expressing uh, her gratitude for the care that we've now shown all of the um, the members, the the dead members of our immediate family, who would be my these, my, my the brother who lived till thirty six. He was, you know, he had a proper burial and the celebration of his life and all of that. But the other two are now properly acknowledged on their behalf and on behalf of so many unnamed ancestors. Let's talk about becoming Dr. Giovanni. How did you become Dr. Giovanni? Give us that backstory. There's so many stories. <laughs> um, I, from a very young age, education was really pushed for me. Um, me and like me and my family in particular. Um, I guess you could say I was a nerd growing up, and uh, my my mother in particular had designs on me becoming a, a physician, a medical doctor. I, I did end up in biology as undergrad, um, but I decided that I really didn't like blood, and so going to med school was not really an option. So I ended up getting an MPH, a master's in public health in Miami. Um, and then, I mean, the short version is I was in three PhD programs over 20 years. Um, out of the first one, I was in a dual program and a master's in public health and a, a, a PhD in marine biology. I'd left with the master's in public health. And then um, I think I spent a year in Brazil uh, learning Portuguese and being a cultural ambassador for Rotary International. I came home and went to RAND um, graduate school where I pursued another PhD. It didn't quite make it and I got a master's in policy analysis, which um, that was an, ab it was an abject failure. Right. But it was actually the biggest gift ever given to me because that was that happened at the same time that the suicide happened. And I mean, in fact, probably could not finish my exams because of the suicide. And um, but it freed me and set me on this path with drum healing and ancestral healing. And ultimately, I returned to I, I went to UCLA to um, study culture and performance. And that is where I first started putting together, um, all, I guess, all of my theory and all my work about how communities use, diasporic communities use drumming and dancing to mediate the traumas of slavery. And that was where I got, I, I consider that to be my degree. Like I have three other degrees. Um, they all hang in my mother's house. And then the, the PhD diploma is actually in my house because that's the one that I really, really wanted and worked for. And that was blood, sweat and tears, but also the like, joy of my academic experience. Uh oh. There. Do you there still hear me? Uh huh. I heard you. I was trying to get it off of unmute. 
Okay. If you conducted this interview, what is the one question you would have asked yourself? I want you to ask the question and answer it. One question. Um, maybe I would have asked myself, what happens? Like, what are some of the wins that my clients have? Or how do I know that the work is working, right? Um, and I, you know, my clients say things to me like, I finally came home to myself or I stopped feeling guilty about doing ancestral work as a white person. Or um, another client said to me that they felt safe. That actually, lots of people say that to me, that uh, I think that's one of my gifts is creating safety or a space where one can work toward liberation. Um, Another client said that through our work together, they determined that the thing they had always considered a weakness, which was their emotionality, was actually their strength. And it changed the way they walked through the world. It changed the way they um, approached their work as a professional. Um, it was very impactful work. So those are, that's what I would have asked. What, what, how does this work transform clients in a, and what does that look like practically? We've come to the part of our interview. It's called Rapid Round of Fun. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like you to give me very quick answers. If there's something you desire not to answer, feel free to say pass. Are you ready for the Rapid Round of Fun? I'm ready. Your favorite holiday? Christmas was the first thing that popped in my mind, Christmas. Your ideal car? Oh, I want a 1967 Mustang. Your favorite color? Orange. Your first job? Day camp counselor. The last movie you saw? Um, Thor, Love and Thunder. <laughs> you relax doing what? Reading. Your favorite singer or rapper? Oh, I think uh, Jill Scott. Your favorite dance song? Um, oh my gosh, Bruno Mars. I can't think of the name of it, but he kisses himself because he's so pretty. What food you eat every week, no matter what? Eggs. Workout or hit the couch? Workout. Dr. Giovanni Washington, thank you so much for joining us on Black Entrepreneur Experience Live. Before we let you go, why don't you share with our audience the best way for them to connect with you and to do business with you and feel free to leave all your social media handles. Excellent. You, thank you very much. So my name is Dr. Giovanni Washington and I am uh, your Black Goddess Guide and you can find the Black Goddess Deck, Volume 1, at go.blackgoddesswithin.com. That's go.blackgoddesswithin.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at blackgoddesswithin. And on Facebook, just under my name, Giovanni Washington. It's G-I-A-V-A-N-N-I -N -N -I Washington. I do all of my um, business stuff on my personal page. So I look forward to seeing you there. Come on by and say hi. Hit me in the DMs. Thank you, Dr. Giovanni. That's a wrap. And we want to thank our audience for joining us. We so appreciate you and feel free to share this 
um, episode with your fans and your friends. That's a wrap. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.